Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. We'll be looking at the book of Daniel. Now, the book of Daniel reads like two books, to be honest. It's a 12-chapter book that's neatly divided into two halves. Six chapters on this half, six chapters on the other half. The first half is like reading a biography of Daniel and his friends. The second half is like reading Daniel's dream journal, frankly. <laughs> and uh, and so, so it causes some trouble in interpretation. But I love what Brian Chappell says. He says... The book of Daniel, because of its first half and because of its second half, presents for us two unique challenges. And the first is this. The first challenge or the first temptation is to worship Daniel. Like we will be tempted to worship Daniel in the first half of the book. And in the second half of the book, we will be tempted to debate Daniel. And both are wrong. And we should not succumb to the temptation because Daniel is not the hero, as we'll see. Daniel. God is. And though the details of all the visions in the second half of Daniel can be confusing, they scream one very clear point, which we'll see. Before we do that, though, let's pray. Lord, would the words of my mouth and would the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer and Holy Spirit? Would we see Jesus in the book of Daniel? Would we worship him? Would he become beautiful in our hearts so that we would leave this space convinced that he is worth it? Do that miracle by your spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, years ago, many of you knew me in this time, I started a garden project in my backyard. And I was on a mission when I did this. I built a box. Like, I don't build things. I built a box. I installed a trellis. I read a book about how to grow a garden. I even used starters instead of seeds in order to make sure it would actually work. And things were going great. Things looked beautiful until it wasn't. (laughs) Until it wasn't. I got busy. We left town for a season. My interest started to fade. My mission to build this garden didn't survive its first season. The challenges to my mission outweighed my commitment to the mission. I didn't fight. I didn't stay. I think we all have stories just like this. Our homes or our apartments are probably filled with half-finished projects. Our computer with half-finished drafts. Let me just ask, how are, how are your New Year's resolutions going? It's March. Anybody? Right. Well, the message of Daniel is very straightforward. God doesn't give up on his mission. When he starts a project, the Lord, he finishes it. Every single chapter of Daniel, as we will see, says the same exact thing in just a different way at a different angle. 
God is writing the story, and his rescue mission is still on. And this was a life-giving message for the original audience, which, remember, is in exile. So everything that they perceive, everything in their lived experience is saying no to the question, is God still on mission? They were wondering, of course they were wondering, is God's mission still on? Has God even given up on us, the chosen vehicles for his mission? Or is it all over? The temple, it's gone. The land, it's over. We've been spit out. And so God says through Daniel over and over again, no, 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 my mission is still on. It's still very much on. And yes, you still are my vehicle for this mission. And this is a life-giving message to us as well. I mean, it may feel like God has given up on his mission today. Can I get an amen? I mean... God decided to use the church to fulfill his mission. But these days we we might look around at the church and we might say, are you sure that's a good idea, Lord? Seriously? Some of us might even be wondering if God has given up on us a long, long time ago. And we're just sort of pretending like it's still on today. But God will say to us this morning through Daniel, my rescue mission is still on. And you have a vital part to play. Okay, so whatever we say about Daniel, whatever we talk about in Daniel, I want you to know that it says one thing and it says one thing clearly. God's mission is on. It's on. It's on. It's on. God's mission is on. Despite everything you see, God's mission is on and you have a part to play. Amen. I like to look at Daniel as a series of tests. Uh, We might think Daniel The person of Daniel is the one tested. But honestly, the truth is this. God's mission is being tested. And specifically in six different ways in the first six chapters. Remember, Daniel's cut in half. Six chapters here, six chapters there. The first six chapters I want us all to think of as a test. And the test is this. Will God's rescue mission come out unscathed? In the early days of the iPhone, um, everybody was super worried about how fragile the thing was. Remember that? And so I remember watching YouTuber video uh, reviewers, and they would, uh, they would sort of subject the iPhone to all kinds of crazy tests, like running it over with a car and dropping it from the top of the roof and from a ladder, scrubbing the screen with a set of keys. You remember this? And it would basically be like, we're going to test to see if this thing is actually going to withhold the pressures that daily life would give it. Well, that's how I look at the first six chapters of Daniel. God promised a rescue mission. If you've been with us in the sermon series, all the way back in Genesis, all the way back in Genesis 3, immediately after the fall into sin, God promised that the offspring of Eve would crush the serpent's head. Do you remember that promise? That is when the rescue mission began. The first kind of cruel beast that we encounter in the Bible. We're going to encounter a lot of beasts in Daniel. But the first cruel beast that we encounter in the Bible. God promises that an offspring of Eve will crush its head. Yes, it will draw blood. But ultimately that serpent will die. 
and sin and death with it will die. And then nine chapters later in Genesis, if you remember, we're told that Abraham, this sort of random dude, right, gets selected and God says, my rescue mission, it's going to go forward. And weirdly, it's going to go forward through your family. My rescue mission to rescue and to redeem and to restore all that sin has broken, all that death is wreaking havoc upon is going to weirdly be through this, uh, this family. And they were given everything. They were given God's promises. They were given God's presence. They were given um, blessing after blessing after blessing land. The garden, God's project was looking good. In fact, in Isaiah 5, God defines his mission project as a vineyard. He actually compares it to a vineyard and he's growing his garden. Everything's looking great. And then everything goes wrong. And if you were with us last week, Lamentations is one long reflection on how everything seemed to go wrong. God uses Babylon of all nations, of all empires to destroy the garden that he planted. The Eden that he was rebuilding. And now what? We're all asking, is God through? Is his rescue mission over? Is that Genesis 3 promise and the family of Abraham thing over? Is it done and dusted? Does the serpent win? Does the beast win? Does sin and death win? That is the question. And you would think so based off evidence. But chapters 1 through 6 of Daniel tell a different story. As I said, I think we see six tests. In each chapter, God's mission actually does more than survive. It actually thrives. And I want to take a look. And if you have your Bible, this would be a great opportunity to just acquaint yourself. Maybe for the first time with this book. Or maybe remind yourself if you've read it before. So in the first chapter, we have what I'm calling the conversion test. So Babylon, remember, sacks Jerusalem. Sacks the temple. Exiles the leaders of Jerusalem to Babylon. Why? They don't want to simply demoralize Jerusalem. They want to Babylonize Jerusalem. They want converts. And it's here we meet four Israelite men named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And these guys are forced in a way to enroll in Babylon studies, we'll call it, at Babylon University. In fact, a better name would be Babylon Seminary because there wasn't sort of this sacred-secular split back then like there is today. And so why were they enrolled in Babylon Seminary? Well, they were enrolled there for, again, conversion. When it says they learned Babylon's literature and when they learned uh, their literature, they're not referring to the Babylonian version of like Jane Austen, okay? They're talking about religious texts, okay? They were learning its religion. Conversion was the end game. Which is why they get new names. Belshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Bendigo. They get new names. And all four of these names praise a Babylonian deity. Did you know that? They're not just saying, hey, we're going to give you the Babylonian version of your old name, Daniel. No, Daniel is a, is, a, is a name that actually praises Yahweh. And so they give him Belshazzar, which is a name that praises the wife of the Babylonian deity. And the same with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. See, they're Babylonizing them. And this comes to a head with what they're eating, apparently. So Babylon wants Daniel and his friends to not just think like a Babylonian official, but actually uh, look the part as well. 
But they decide, in fact, verse 8 says they resolved to do otherwise. They decide to say no to Babylon in this way. And so, we are right away asking, will God's mission survive? Well, right away, chapter 1, the first test, God seems to think so. He makes these four guys with their meager fast ten times, it says, better than all the other students. So, does God's mission survive exile? Verdict for test number one, God's mission is on. Chapter 2 is the interpretation test. The interpretation test, we'll call it. Because the king is stressed out about his dream, which back then were very big deals. It was thought that God's communicated through dreams. And so he summons his magicians. These professional dream interpreters basically crumble and say, nobody but Babylon's gods, and then I'm quoting verse 11, who do not dwell with flesh could do what you're asking, Nebuchadnezzar. So enter the true God, okay, who does dwell with flesh, as we read about in in the book of Psalms, and who will in fact become flesh a few centuries later. Daniel and his buddies pray to this true God. God reveals the dream. And so Daniel, in response, blesses God, worships him, and then Daniel blesses all of Babylon. He says, look at verse 24. Don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. That's very generous of Daniel to say to his enemies. But notice what just happened. God blesses Daniel and then Daniel in turn blesses the nations. And that, friends, is proof that the mission is on. It is not over. Daniel has a ton of dangerous information, really, with this dream interpretation, like the ring in Lord of the Rings. I know there are no Lord of the Rings nerds out there, so uh, with me. Uh, this revelation from God could, in a way, corrupt Daniel into godlike illusions. Because remember, in those days, dreams were everything. And so, what do we see with Daniel, though? We see the exact opposite. Daniel makes sure that the emperor, and all of the empire, really, knows that this is all God and not charisma. This is all Yahweh and not Daniel. Again, the mission is on. God is being made famous to the nations. And to drive this point even deeper, Daniel reveals the dream. And in this dream, we have this giant statue layered with different precious metals, kind of like Neapolitan ice cream. That's how I envision it. Starts with gold and it goes on down, silver, down to iron and dirt. And in the end, in the end of the dream, if you remember, Sunday school people, if you remember, there's a small, un hewn, sort of a, a, not hewn by human hands, but a God-hewn rock that breaks the whole thing down. Now, what's that all about? Well, Daniel tells him, the statue represents human empires, and the changing layers are like the rise and the fall of different empires, and the small stone That's God's rule. That's Yahweh's rule. God's kingdom will, and I'm quoting, rise and stand forever. Jesus says in Matthew 21, verse 44, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. What do you think he's referring to? Surprisingly, this interpretation doesn't get Daniel killed, but promoted. It's very Joseph-like of Daniel. And that happens a lot, actually. And so again, Daniel blesses, this time by promoting his buddies with him. So does God's mission survive 
The second test. What's the verdict? Yes, God's mission is on. Chapter 2 ends actually with King Nebuchadnezzar bowing down to Daniel. God's mission is very much on. Which takes us to our third test. We'll call it the execution test. So chapter 3 is the execution test. The king must not have liked the multi-layered stone statue because, it, remember, it communicated that there'll be kingdoms after him. You know what I mean? If he's the gold top, then there's some silver follower. So what does the king do in response to his dream and in response to Daniel's interpretation? Do you guys know? He builds a very big golden statue of himself. Which is like a rebuke against his dream. He's basically saying, no, no, no. The, you know, it's going to be all gold. There's not going to be anybody after me. My kingdom is a forever kingdom. And I'm going to make sure everybody knows this. And so I'm going to require everybody to sort of bend their knee to this image of myself. So with the resolve and the pride and the hubris that likely landed him the king job in the first place. Um, uh, he makes a statue of himself. It's all gold. Thank you very much. And then he forces everybody to worship him upon penalty of death. Now, this is not so subtle, is it? Now, if God was just a God, not the God. No big deal. No big deal. But there are three guys, Daniel's friends, who paid no attention to this command. King gets furious, says, are you sure you want to do this? The friends say, yep, we're totally sure we want to not bow down to this idol. The three of them are actually shockingly calm and they say to the king, God is able to rescue us out of this furnace that you're threatening to throw us into. But even if God doesn't rescue us, we're still not going to do it. We're not going to bow. This infuriates the king even more, so he turns up the furnace past its highest setting, which ends up killing his servants, sadly, but not the three young men. In fact, the king notices a fourth person walking in the furnace with them. Does God's mission survive exile? Verdict? Third test? Yes, God's mission is on. God will even draw near in the fire to make sure it happens. Which takes us to chapter chapter 4, which we'll call the interpretation test part 2. Uh, this time, uh, the king gets a dream, but it's a giant tree, not a giant statue. It's a giant tree, and it really troubles him. Uh, a watcher, a watcher, as it's called, comes down from heaven in its dream and says, this tree needs to be chopped, and then the stump will somehow become like an animal for some time. If you've had a crazy dream, you're like tracking right now. This is how dreams work. Um, they're weird. And so this stump is going to become like an animal for some time. And why? Well, uh, to humble the cut down stump. That's why. His wise man can't tell the king what this means at all. But Daniel does. Again. All right. Again. Uh, just like Joseph. And so here's the tree. The tree is the king. And the watcher is the Lord. Who will cut him down and humble him from a godlike status to a beast-like status. This happens in real time, but Nebuchadnezzar, in the end, lifts his eyes to heaven, it says in the text, and he's restored. And so we ask again, does God's mission survive exile? Yes, God's mission is on. The beast, the beast, the emperor of Babylon acknowledges 
and lifts his eyes to heaven. Very much so, the mission is on. By the way, hang on to that beast language as it connects to emperors. Because that plays a part in the second half of Daniel. And this takes us to the next test. What we'll call the interpretation test part three. Because again, we're called on, Daniel's called on to interpret something. This time it's not a dream, but it's the writing on the wall. We have a new king, his name is Belshazzar, and it's next level pride because he's not only worshiping idols, but he's actually using the sort of temple cups from the the broken down temple of Jerusalem uh, to get drunk on in his idolatry. And so that's like next level stuff. And so like the Ten Commandments, God's hand writes words, though these words are words of judgment. The king freaks out, his interpreters fail, enter Daniel, sound familiar? Daniel doesn't want money. He doesn't want fame. He just wants to make sure everybody knows who God is. That's verse 23 of chapter 5. And Daniel interprets the words. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson as numbered, weighed, and divided. All bad words if you're trying to build an eternal kingdom. Okay? If your goal is a kingdom that never falls, then... Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Doesn't really fit the bill. So Babylon goes bye-bye at the end of chapter 5. Verdict? Is God's mission still on? God's mission is still on. Babylon isn't writing the story. God is. Which takes us to the sixth chapter of Daniel. The final test. We'll call it the execution test. Part 2. We have a new Persian king now, a new kingdom. Maybe it's the silver uh, layer of the, of the statue. And Daniel now has um, basically a 70-year track record in the Babylonian White House, we'll say. The only thing he does wrong with another, you know, he's excellent in what he does. The only thing he does wrong is worship the wrong God, which is the true God. And so jealous officials trap him with a pretty awful prayer ban and... Danny, we'll call him, keeps up his thrice daily prayer habit. It's not like he's like, you know what, I'm going to like stick it to them and pick up praying because they banned it. No, no, no. He's just continuing to do what he's always done. He gets caught. He gets thrown into a den of lions. As one commentator puts it, Daniel has a better night of sleep than Darius does. The king. Daniel's execution in the end looks more like resurrection. Side point. Do you ever wonder why Jesus encounters the beasts in the desert? Maybe. Just maybe. We're learning that Jesus is the true and perfect Daniel. Who is victorious over the beasts. Be it lions. Be it a serpent. Who enters the sealed tomb. Dead. As it were. But emerges alive. Now. What is the common thread through all of these tests? All six of these tests. What is the common thread? It's this. God's mission is still very much on. God 
his mission to bless the nations, to rescue all that has been broken is not off track, but it's very much on track. See, Daniel is not the hero of Daniel. Who is? God is. And Daniel makes sure that everybody knows it. Which takes us to the second half of Daniel. Because the second half of Daniel, though it changes, it's like a total left field into all this like visionary symbolisms and everything else. Uh, it's actually saying the same exact thing, but just in a very, very different way with symbolic visions. The, the, the more, a sort of like technical word for this is apocalyptic language. Apocalypse simply means to reveal. To reveal. And so it's a genre in the ancient world where they would um, use highly symbolic images, highly symbolic numbers to basic, God would basically say what true life, what real life is actually like behind the scenes using these highly symbolic visions. And so what we have in these last six chapters of Daniel is four unforgettable visions that says the same exact thing as the first six chapters. God's mission is still very much on. I think Daniel is being generous to his readers, to God's people. I think he's helping right-brainers and left-brainers worship the Lord, okay? Some of us, we love the linear stories of Daniel 1 through 6. Others of us, we need these like hard-to-forget images to be convinced that God's mission is on. So let's look at each vision. The first vision we have We'll call it the inhuman beast versus the divine human king. So in chapter 7, there's a showdown behind, uh, between beasts and sort of a divine human king. Daniel sees four beasts or animals come out of the scariest place on earth for the ancient Near East, which was the sea. And what do we have? We have a flying lion who transforms into a man. I think of Transformers like the very beginning. Uh, A man-eating bear. That's easy for me to imagine. And then you have a four-winged, four-headed flying leopard with a lot of power. And then a vicious ten-pointed, like, its horns have ten points, like a buck, with iron teeth. But a small human-like horn starts to grow and speak in place of three horns that get broken off. And right at this moment, Daniel sees the Ancient of Days in his throne room. And the beasts look kind of silly compared to his majesty. And this Ancient of Days sat in judgment in his court. And the books were opened, it says in verse 10 of chapter 7. And all the beasts go bye-bye. And so it's at this exact moment that a figure sort of rides in the clouds. And every reader of the Old Testament knows what that means. Riding in the clouds was something that only God did. And so you have this figure riding the clouds into this throne room. And so this figure we know is divine. And yet, not inhuman like the beasts. But human like a son of man, says the text. Like a son of man. Which was just the catchword back then for a human. Well, the Ancient of Days gives him an everlasting dominion. That's what happens in chapter 7. And by the way, in Acts, in the book of Acts, as we'll get to this later, when Jesus sort of lifts into the clouds in his ascension after his resurrection, that's not just some cool magic trick to impress. Jesus could 
have returned to his father any old way, any way that he wants to. But instead, he chooses to do it in a Daniel 7 kind of way, doesn't he? Why? Because he's telling us through the ascension that his forever reign is on. The mission is still going forward. There is no beast. There is no kingdom. There is no empire that stands against the Lord. Well, this vision troubles Daniel, so he prayerfully asks what it means, and he gets an answer. The inhuman beasts with horns are kings and kingdoms, and we already kind of knew that from Nebuchadnezzar, who turned into a beast. Remember that? Okay, so the beasts are these kings and kingdoms, but despite all their power and destruction, they all fall down before the true king. Quoting chapter 7, his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. And all dominion shall serve and obey him. So it turns out the little rock of chapter 2 is the Son of Man of chapter 7. Amen? We all know what Jesus liked to call himself. The Son of Man. This vision says one thing. God's mission is still on. The second vision is chapter 8. It's a goat vision. Uh, so, so Daniel sees a giant ram with two horns held high. And this ram is sort of winning in life. Okay, And then whoosh comes a sort of flying one-horned goat. Again, this is for all you uh, sort of right, um, uh, right-brained uh, folks. I mean, some of you are really tracking with this imagery. Others of us are just like, we're gone. We're going to the bathroom. So you have this sort of uh, one-horned goat coming in. And this goat thinks it's the goat. Okay? Greatest of all time. But you guessed it. Eventually his horn is broken and four horns grow in its place. And one of its horn grows another horn, which really messes with God's people. And Daniel asks an angel named Gabriel what it all means. And God, God through Gabriel says all these horns are kings and kingdoms. We know this already. But even the most powerful beast will be destroyed. It says in verse 25 of chapter 8, by no human hand. This vision also declares one thing. God's mission is on. Which takes us to the third vision of chapter 9. We'll call it Gabe's math problem. Because here we have in chapter 9, Daniel having a Bible study in the book of Jeremiah. And he notices that God put a time limit on the exile, 70 years. And this causes Daniel to pray one of the most God-sent prayers I've ever heard uh, anybody pray before. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention. And act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because of your city and your people are called by your name. And he's praying over and over again, appealing on God's mercy and God's reputation. It's this amazing prayer in chapter 9. And Gabriel flies in to give him God's answer. And God, apparently God loves humble prayers. But the answer isn't super clear. Let's just... Say that. It's apparently going to take 77s to finish the exile and to bring full restoration and righteousness. So in other words, Eden will be restored. Not in 70 years, but in 77. 70 times 7 years. Which if you do the math literally, it kind of roughly takes you to the time of Christ. If you do the math figuratively, which is probably more the point, it's clear that God will restore his kingdom in perfect timing. What does seven always mean in the scriptures? Perfection. So this vision, once again, says one thing. God's mission is on, and it takes us to the last vision. Which sounds like a rock band, Danny and the Angels. 
That's my title, by the way, not the Hebrew title, if you're wondering. It's the fourth and final vision. It takes three chapters to unpack it, but Daniel basically is mourning, and he sees an angel. But it's not a cute little cherub with a harp. And this messes Daniel up, and he falls face down. This angel is fearsome, but super encouraging. And he shows us that there's a battle going on in the unseen realm that somehow mirrors what we see in life. And this angel tells uh, this angel reads to them Daniel, this, reads to Daniel this from this thing called the book of truth, which is basically God's story. And so for the rest of Daniel, he shares what he reads. And if it helps, Daniel himself doesn't even really know what it all means. So if you look at the last chapter, chapter 12, verse 8, Daniel says, I heard, but I did not understand. And that, friends, is my life verse when it comes to Daniel. I heard, but I did not understand. But the point, again, is not the details, but the big picture. And for the rest of Daniel, we see what this angel reveals. And I like how Brian Chapel summarizes these two chapters. I'm quoting. The inescapable conclusion is that our God knows and directs the affairs of this world for his ultimate glory and our ultimate good. In the end, Daniel can, and look at the last verse, can go his way until the end. Why? God is writing the story. The book of life is open. God knows what's going to happen. And in the end, he will accomplish what he set out to do. Friends, the whole book of Daniel is a one-string fiddle. My rescue mission is on. Exile does not change anything. It doesn't change a thing. And friends, if today faith feels like exile, I think we have a lot to learn from this book, don't we? I've noticed just in my own observations, the church reacting to our cultural moment in one of two ways. What I would call the desert way and the downtown way. What I mean is this, there's sort of this reaction to our cultural moment to, you know, to go to the desert and to really camp out on Paul's command to be not conformed to the world. It's a way of contrast. And then the downtown way, as I call it, takes Paul's command, win the respect of outsiders, 1 Thessalonians 4.11, and kind of runs with it. And so this is the way of contact. They say they're power brokers. They're mostly downtown in the city. So let's change the world by changing the city. And so you have the desert way, which is like, forget it. We're out of here. And then you have the downtown way, which is like, come on, engage, change the world, get involved. And I think, obviously, because I'm quoting scripture, there's truth to both of these impulses. And so what would happen, actually, if we combine them? And that's what I think we have in the book of Daniel. I want to call the Daniel way mission on the margins. And I want to suggest that what we just encountered in the book of Daniel could be for us our script. Because what it says, again, over and over and over and over again, is that God's mission is still on. It is not over, even though they are in exile. Friends, if faith feels like exile today, we can know that we still have a mission. That mission is on the margins, but it's still mission. It still is contact. It's still, though, a way of contrast. It's both contract. It's both contrast and contact, because God's mission is on. And so just three brief 
brief sort of recommendations from this approach. And the first is this. The Daniel way is going to be for us Christ-centered. As we saw, every chapter in Daniel proclaims the truth that God is writing the story. In chapter 10, verse 21, as we saw, this story is called the book of truth. So the Daniel way understands that we are in a story that is going somewhere and we are not the hero. And one like the son of man is who brings resurrection and victory over his and our enemies. And so our life is going to be profoundly Christ centered. Number one. Number two, I think the Daniel way strikes me as a way of courage. It requires what some therapists call differentiation. This is the capacity to be in a stressful situation and hold on to yourself. Each challenge, if you think back to the challenges for Daniel, required for him differentiation. Daniel holds on to himself and to his loyalties in the midst of profound, profound pressures to lose himself. So Daniel and his buddies have a deep loyalty to make them very strange in Babylon, even as they succeed, even as they get along, even as they're excellent in their high-profile jobs. But in the end, their loyalties are, are with the Lord, and in the end, that makes them strange. They're differentiated. They have profound and significant contact, but they also have profound and significant contrast. As I like to say often, salt and light, to be salt and light requires both. Paul says, don't be conformed to the world. I want to say amen to that. I don't think that means culture war. It's just obedience to King Jesus. Wherever this loyalty takes you. We're not picking fights. This loyalty to King Jesus, I think, will make you enemy, will make enemies on both sides of the political aisle. In fact, if 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 your faith matches a political ideology perfectly, then that's just probably idolatry. But the Daniel way is courageous without really trying to be because they're simply taking their cues from the Lord. They're simply taking their cues from the Lord. And that's the Daniel way. And finally, I want to say that the Daniel way is confident. Daniel strikes me as a relaxed person. I mean, he gets some crazy dreams and they kind of freak him out. He gets comforted by the angels. That's good. But in general, I see him not stressed out really about his rights. Do you know what I mean? He seems very humble and yet confident. He has a restful posture. He can say in chapter 2, verse 21, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings. He sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He simply is so centered on the fact that God is writing the story that he can relax. He can relax in that. And so can you. So can you. The Ancient of Days judges all that could be against us. And it gives dominion to the one like a son of man, Jesus. And so whatever you face in your life today, as it's been said, the worst case scenario is never the worst case scenario. We can go our way until the end, very last verse of Daniel, because resurrection is our future. In fact, chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, talks about this resurrection. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
verse 2 of chapter 12, we know the story ends well for all who are in Christ. And this gives us a confidence. It actually gives us an impossible to manufacture curiosity to about how our lives fit into God's story. If we know God's going to finish it in the end, then we can actually wake up curious about how our role fits into that. We're not the hero, Jesus says, but we still might get some interesting opportunities pointing others to Jesus. In the end, it's not our missional success or our failures that matter, but Jesus. He's the one who makes all things right. See, the mission of God is on. It's on. It's on. Always has been. Always will be. And Daniel ultimately shows us that mission is a person. The author of the story entered the story. Jesus is the mission of God. Jesus is the sent one in flesh. So we can simply rest in him. Lord, we do. We do that now. We do that now, Lord. We rest in the truth that your mission is on. And in fact, your mission is accomplished in Christ, the true Daniel. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.